0: So hello and welcome to podcast number 10 for All Things Java. I'm Richard Chesterwood with Matt Greencroft. Nice to see you again, Richard.
1: And good to see you. And I understand you have an apology to... I (laughs) do have an apology. So I should explain that um, one of the things I do after each podcast is we get it transcribed by a... Very, very good third party company. But there's always the odd word. So I w- read the transcript as I listen to the podcast. And I was. Sat- you listen to the podcast. I listen to the podcast. Oh my word. So you have, we have at least one listener. <laughs> there you go. That was great news. So I was sat in my kitchen listening to the podcast and. Every time I said a female name that triggers off a certain Amazon device to listen to you, my, Am- my Amazon device went bonkers. Andrea, so, is it? Uh, well, I didn't want to say it. It's, it's Lex. Like, so you made me say it. Okay. <laughs> so, so I want to apologise for anybody out there who's listening to this who has an Amazon Echo and is listening to it on speakers, not on headphones. So it's picking up every time. In that last episode, I said, play the whatever podcast because it can't find it. It never works. And she kept starting to say, well, she started at one point playing some comedy thing from the 1960s. It was all a bit bizarre. Um, Yeah, but um,
0: even Amazon, I uh, I had an echo dot, I nearly said the female name there. (laughs) I had an Echo Dot for a while. I hated it so much I got rid of it. I passed it on to some schmuck. (laughs) Oh, sorry, that was you, wasn't it? Um, But I, yeah, uh, often the uh, uh, Amazon uh, adverts would come on the TV and they don't care about saying I mean, they will actually say, "Alexa, book me a taxi, please." For and you know, my my Echo's firing up. Yes. Awful piece of technology. I
1: absolutely hated it. How are you on with it? I'm. I haven't used it very much. I, the main thing I use it for is to tell it to add things to my shopping list because I've got it in the kitchen. Right, it's quite convenient. So I realise I need more eggs. I'll just <laughs> um, because I use a shopping list on the Todoist app. Yep. It can connect to that, so it adds things to my app. So that's ideal. That's the big use i found for it. Right. And it is easier than getting your phone out of your pocket and typing eggs in. So, you sure, know. A
0: use as a, a use, I found no use for it. apart yes. from playing podcasts. So that I yes. wanted it to be able to play this podcast. I'm sorry I've digressed a little bit. There was no Java in that. But, of course, you can write skills for Alexa, I
1: guess. Can you yes. do that in Java, I think? Do you know, I've not even looked. I would assume so. It
0: integrates with AWS Lambda, so yes. I would assume. Oh, yes. uh, I hope we don't not get asked
1: for that. I don't want to do a course on that. Well, no, and of course that there are. You know, Amazon is not the only company producing these kind of devices. Google have got one. There's others coming out. There's loads of these smart home devices that they're called. So you know, just because the you can write a skill for one of them, that is not obviously going to translate, is yeah, it? So yeah. and at this stage, I think it's too early to know which is going to be the dominant player, if any. This could be one of those things that actually solution in search for problems. Like the smartwatch. You know, the smartwatch. Okay, the Apple device is still out there, but it's not had the sales they expected. And all the others are falling by the wayside now. I mean, okay, you can still get the uh, Android Wear watches. Yes. But they aren't having the the take-up that I think anyone really thought they might.
0: Yeah.
1: Because, again, it's limited use, isn't it? Do you really want emails flashing up on your wrist every five seconds? Definitely not.
0: Definitely not. So I digress you a little bit there, but we have a general plan to cover... Uh, we're going to talk about anemic domain models and Java beans and all that kind of thing. But uh, the, the idea for this podcast was triggered by a news article this week on Hacker News, which, uh, as usual, we'll put in a, a link to the show notes. And um, I, I thought it was a very, a very interesting discussion. I think the discussion on Hacker News is more interesting than the original news article, really. And I would recommend any of our listeners to uh, go to Hacker News and have a look at this. The, the title of the article is Data Classes for Java. And what triggered this news article was uh, Brian Gertz, who is one of the architects of Java,
1: so, and he's the guy who wrote the
0: Java Concurrency in Practice,
1: I think. And that? You, you've oh. always got your nose in that book, haven't you? You're <laughs> never away from it. I think that's certainly where I first came across the name. But he he's worked for Oracle for years, hasn't he? Yep. Is he probably chief architect for Java or language. He's certainly tried. one of the. I'm not sure
0: if he's the chief, but he's certainly one oh, of I the. Yeah. One of the big architects, and so he's done a proposal for what it doesn't seem to have any um, fancy name other than just
1: data classes for Java. So And and actually I've got the article in front of me. He's saying it this is an explore, exploratory document. So it's not a proposal at this stage. He's saying um it, I mean, well, is he asking for comments? Is he asking for feedback or is he saying this is just where our thinking is right now? Yeah. Or yeah, that that's and I guess
0: this is part of the new six-month rolling release type thing. It it looks like things like this, which this isn't going to be this week's rant. This is going right. to be a mini-rant. Okay. It, it just strike me as ridiculous. We're, what, twenty odd years into Java, um, we're up to version ten and we're still discussing these really what what to many eyes, and, and a lot of the comments on Hacker News reflect this, you know, I can't believe that we're discussing this after so long. It should be a fundamental, it should probably be in the
1: language. So, so let's summarise. What, what is the what is he sort of suggesting? What's the, what is the news? So let's talk about the problem, first of all. Okay. And any Java developer must
0: be well aware of this problem. Boilerplate code. Um, given any class, say you've got 10 attributes in a class, yes. 10 private member variables, whatever you want to call them. Um, what are you going to end up with in that class very quickly. We all know it. We'll generate the code using your IDE. You're going to end up with get set pairs for each of the private attributes. You're going to have to write it to string. That's a little bit different uh, because you you generally put your own custom stuff into string. But you'll also need a hash code and Mm -hmm. an equals. Yes. And we generally generate them these days. Yes. Which is a that is a big topic as well that we should we should touch on in this in this discussion
1: so when you say gen, gen, generally mm-hmm. generate them mm-hmm. well yes when we remember to some of us don't always generate them when we should and you can oh, so see code you, where we've not generated them and so you mean the equals and the hash
0: code yes. so yeah and more than that it's you add it in fact, the talk we were at the, uh, last week, someone mentioned this. You add a new attribute, and you forget. Yeah, you that's what update. your update. Right yeah, yeah, so
1: um, yeah, you absolutely. forget to
0: update it, so the equals ends up being broken, possibly. Yeah. So we all know that we do that in Java, and I think we almost do it mindlessly without thinking. And the discussion on Hack News. Bear in mind, Hack News is not a Java site; it is a general uh, hacker site. And software developers, geeks in general, yes. uh, frequent hacker news. And a lot of the comments on here, in fact, at the time of recording this, the number one comment is, why on earth would you do this? What do you need getters and setters for? This is crazy. And you know, this guy doesn't come from Java and he's a bit baffled about what is the what is this strange culture in Java that you all
1: generate gets and sets. So, so, what's the alternative if you've if you've never been a Java programmer, if you've only ever done, and I, I can't even name a language, probably Scala, I suppose, where where this would be a foreigner concept. What what would be the norm in other people's worlds? Then C
0: Sharp was probably the first one to do a, and, and Visual Basic .Net was the first one to do a good. I think they were. Now they wouldn't be the first, but certainly they had a good solution to this, which you you, you uh, properties. Which is what we're really talking about here. Right. So you've written a class. We're going, we're going to talk in detail about anemic domain models in the middle of this podcast. Mm. So we're just circling around the edges of the discussion right now. So forgive me for being a little bit basic at this part of the discussion. But you, you've written a class. You've got three attributes in there. An, an ID, a name, and an address. Keep it simple. Yes. And we, we will talk about whether you should have gets and sets and whether they're an anti-pattern or not. I promise we will. But for now, let's say that you wanna display the details of that object on a screen. Yes. Dead simple. You're gonna have to somehow extract the data out of that class. Yes. So, there's sort of two obvious ways of doing that. In in an object-oriented language like Java, you could make the field public. Yes. Or you could provide a method that somehow returns the value of that field. Yes. So I don't think we've time on a podcast to ramble on about encapsulation. I was waiting for that word to come (laughs) up. Absolutely. So encapsulation, one of the, well, the, I would say the fundamental principle of object orientation. And I I would just, yeah, it's difficult to do on a podcast, but if any listeners are interested in this, have a look at the Hacker News piece. And a lot will say, just make the fields public. Just make them public. What's difficult about that?
1: Yes, and I guess my instant reaction to that is that in a typical class, you'll have 10 attributes, of which nine, the gets and sets are absolutely standard, not doing any kind of logic, no kind of validation. They're literally just updating or retrieving the value of an attribute. And there'll be one... Where you need to do something slightly different. Well, let's
0: do a concrete example then. Again, we'll try to keep it as simple as possible. Yes. So I think I was heading towards maybe a customer class. Yes. Are boring, these examples?
1: <laughs> we, at least everyone can understand them. Yeah, I can we, understand we,
0: we, them. We can't do a nuclear science example now. We? <laughs> so we've got a customer class, a couple of boring fields, name and address. There's also a status that I'm going to put, I'm, I'm doing quote marks with my fingers here. There's a status. There's a status associated with a customer. Yes. On version one of the system, it's just a field. Yes. It was just a, a string. Yes. But then on version two of the system, the business requirements got really complicated. The status of a customer is determined by some... Nasty process, well it could, no, checking. It
1: could be some very simple logic, right? It could be if the customer's never bought anything, they're pending. If they've bought, they're active. And exactly. if they haven't bought for five years, they're inactive. Exactly. You could have a really basic logic that's really simple to work out. Yeah. But the point is it becomes a, what I would think of as a calculated value. Yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: So it's not a field
0: anymore. So it's not a private... Uh, It is, and I'm going to use the term, this is a term not defined in Java. Right. We can think of that instead of being, it's a property of that class. Yes. External viewers of that class, such as our user interface, would think of it as, well, it's just the property of a customer. Yes. But we know internally in that class, we calculate it. Yes. And by the way, before I go on, there might be some object-oriented experts, listeners, going, no, it wouldn't be part of the customer class. It would be in a class of its own. And you're
1: probably right, but we're keeping it simple just for... Well, we might be talking about that in a little while anyway, because of what we're going on to. But but the point here is that it's a read-only value. So you can't obviously set a status Mm -hmm. because it's calculated based on other attributes, Mm -hmm. right? That's the principle here.
0: So, the upshot in Java, we don't have the concept of a property, but we do have the concept of methods. So you just write a method to return it and yes if you'd made it public in that version one of the system then you'd have the potential for other parts of the code being able to just just change that value at will and we know now that's, that shouldn't be possible as you've said you want it to be read only you want to yes. control it Yes. so that's why we work with methods now that is you know you can you you I would recommend anyone follows your Java fundamentals course if you want to learn about encapsulation and all that kind of thing. But I think we can take it as read that our listeners will understand that and be familiar with it. So, why is this a big, a, a great big
1: discussion point in Java? What's the so? I mean, we were at a a talk where they were discussing the various merits of Java versus Scala in mm-hmm. particular use cases. Um, and one of the arguments the Scala guy was was saying is that you don't spend, you don't waste all this time writing this sort of mm-hmm. boilerplate code. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have the issue of forgetting to update your equals method. Um, and that you know, really, a model language should, uh, you know, should be doing these. I can't know what the word is now, these really boilerplate hmm. activities for you. Yes. Um, and in a way Java does, because the the IDEs oh. generated for you, but it's not yeah. got that same. Now, yes. It's so- a bad, if you,
0: it's all very well when you generate code and you think, well, that's easy. Yes. Uh, you've touched on it earlier. What you forget is that that code has to be maintained. And has to be maintained forever, and it's the cost of maintaining that code, which is a burden. You could also add other arguments in, which is if you've generated 150 lines of boilerplate code, that's completely, it's not completely, but it's I, I, I want to say obfuscating. That's a it's hiding the the, the 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 valuable method, the one that you're talking about that calculates the status of a customer. Yes. You can't see that in amongst all of this generated stuff that you just start tuning
1: out and you kind of You're you know. right um, but a lot of you know a lot of the time that in Java we are writing um, stuff that I mean, I'll give you a good example. What I think of as being a similar sort of example is that say you're working with um, a JPA repository type class and you're creating, so you've created this interface and you're adding in interface methods like find by ID or find by status where you are, you're, you're having to write this, you're not generating the underlying code, that's happening for you. And yet you're having to write a method that really... Why should you even have to write that method? Why can't it just do it? Mm -hmm. So a lot of Java is, it feels like is that. You're writing things that are boilerplate code, even if it's in a different context.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So this Brian's proposal is really to bring Java in line with languages like Scala, Groovy, and Visual Basic, C Sharp, and basically to have the, uh, the concept of a property. I'm, I'm less interested in equals and hash code. I'm not really yeah. thinking about that in this discussion. I'm thinking about the get and set methods. So basically, it will be a class which has an automatic get set method in. So,
1: so what's the difference between that and making the attribute public in the first place, then?
0: Uh, well, if an attribute is public, then it can be written and read. Yes, written is probably the important one by any code anywhere in your system. So you don't have as the writer of that class as the maintainer of that class you've got no control over what the clients of that class do with your with objects of that class. okay so the status we've been talking about there could be arbitrarily changed by some client breaking all the, business logic that we want to wrap around that right so by making them private you're then forced to use methods which in general could have rich logic inside them
1: yes so but what brian is proposing this having uh sorry what was the word attributes or no uh, properties yes um what would a property of a class look like then it would be Well, he has a,
0: again, we'll put a link in the show notes. It's, of course, linked from the Hacker News article anyway, but it is a long piece, and I must confess I haven't actually read it all. But he has a general proposal, which looks very similar to how you would do things in Scala. And so I'm looking about halfway down the article. He says, let's go for something like... And he's been using all the way through the example a class called point, which is just an x, y coordinate. Okay. So he does it before. How you would do things in Java today would be class point, blah, blah, a couple of private attributes for x and y. And then you'd have a constructor, you'd have a get and a set for each of them, and you would have an equals and hash code. So looking at what, about 50 lines of code there just to do this point. So he says... In this new modern proposal, the way it would be done would be underscore underscore data. Interesting. That's a keyword. New keyword in Java. Underscore underscore data. Right. Class point int x int y in round brackets.
1: Okay. Done. And so that would, would be exactly the same in terms of output, or or when it's compiled into bytecode, as you writing that existing Java class with getters and setters equals hash code. So what it's saying is it's not changing any kind of data type, it's just generating the code but you never even see it. Exactly. Right, okay. You
0: never see it, you never feel it, you don't maintain it.
1: Okay, so that's only possible if your class is a... I I want to say pojo, and I'm not sure if that's quite right, Mm. but if it is simply a class containing variables with gets and sets and nothing yep. else, there's no concept of read-onlys in here or the, um, validation I or anything like that. I yeah.
0: assume the cases, um, I'm working from knowledge of similar languages. I assume that the cases, if then you wish to customize any of that, and you can, so you can privatize the setters if you want to make it read-only. And most importantly of all, you will be able to if you decide that your setter method needs some logic, yes so you need some validation or something, then you can override that setter
1: okay if needed. okay. What about constructors? So I'm thinking back to the groovy in groovy, you can uh, declare a class, sorry you can instantiate a class providing. Um, values for any of its attributes in the constructor by doing variable name colon value. Any concept of that sort that. of... No, I no. Doubt,
0: as I say, I haven't read it, but I doubt they'll be going that far with it. Okay. I assume you're going to be getting, again, sorry, assuming here, I assume you will get a default no arg constructor and a constructor with all of the... Looking at this example here, it looks like you will get an X and a Y in that example. right. So, great. It's not actually that
1: interesting, as no, so it should have been bigger, in the start. No, all that bigger deal, really. It doesn't sound like Definitely it.
0: Definitely not. And to do a little digression, again, some useful information for um, anyone who is working in Java, there has been a third-party library for us available for some time now that will do all of that. Yes. It's already been done. None of this is yes. new art. It's called Project Lombok. L-O-M-B-O-K
1: And do people Well, presumably people are using Oh, the, very much, yeah this. It, it, it did get a bit of a mixed very reaction, mixed, didn't yeah, it? It's to a the, love
0: or hate thing, uh, Lombok But just to cut to the chase If you're using Project Lombok Then you would have your class You would annotate it I think the annotation is at data And all of that stuff is generated
1: And so the <clears throat>
0: It's and I should say, not generated in the IDE. You don't see yes. it. That's the important thing. It's done behind the scenes. Right.
1: So effectively, it's generated at runtime or generated at compile time. Yeah. Or, now, this yes. is
0: key. It actually adds a
1: compile step to your build process. Ah, that's what they were talking about. Yeah. Yes. And that's the...
0: So I looked at this. Can't remember now. Might be a year ago. Time's going at such a strange rate these (laughs) days. Might have been a year ago, I looked at it. Now, I have a rule of thumb that anything where you're generating or you're adding compile steps, I avoid it like the plague. Yes. It always causes you technical debt at some point down the line, which is why I was delighted when we were at that talk and... I think it was the lead speaker, wasn't it, said, oh, yes. I hate Lombok. Yes. We've used it on a project and I hated it. It
1: screwed everything up. Brilliant. I mean, I, I hadn't heard of it before, but I think, in, you know, just when you're going to do, you know, if you're doing test-driven development, you're writing new unit tests, and in order to run the test, you've got to do an extra compile step every time. Is that Good how point. it works? It I would, would assume be...
0: I haven't touched it with, yeah. a, with, a, with a long stick, so, um, <laughs> and I'm not going to either. So any customers who want a course on Project Lombok, go somewhere else. Know, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important to be clear about what we don't like.
1: Okay. So getting back to where we were then, so there's this general idea of having effectively you can write one line of code and that's the equivalent of writing a whole class now with loads of attributes in. Um, so why is it contentious? Why is there lots of discussion then on this?
0: Excellent. Um, can I, I'll just scan down a few of them. Why would? Why are you doing this? Why are you... What. Are, gets and sets. This is ridiculous. And it all goes back to, and very fortuitously, we've been having a conversation, the both of us, with with one of our customers, who wanted to talk about the concept of an anemic domain model. And I think that should be the core of this podcast, the anemic domain model. So...
1: I'm just conscious that not everybody listening to this will necessarily have English as their first language. So it might just be worth saying. The word anemic... I mean, it is quite a... Well, it's a medical word, yeah, isn't it? Yeah,
0: regardless of where you come from. Unless uh, you know, you've suffered from anemia, you may yes. not care what so, anemic means.
1: So, And I'm hoping I'm going to get this right. My understanding of anemia. So anemia is an illness where you're basically weak because you are lacking in blood. Exactly. So um, to describe a domain model as anemic is, is quite an interesting description anyway. Um, which comes from Martin Fowler. And does I, it? I remain ah.
0: convinced... That, I mean I love Martin Fowler, I would never I would ne- never negatively criticise him for one reason, he's, he's an avid listener of this podcast. I have no evidence to suggest that he <laughs> isn't an avid listener of this podcast. <laughs> if, you're, if you're not listening, <laughs> no. oh, <sorry. laughs> we're finishing each other's gags now. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I like that. Um, I mean he's a great thinker and software developer etc, but his real talent is naming things brilliantly. <laughs> <laughs> and that gets people discussing them. Yes. And when you come up with a name like anemic domain model, I don't know about you, but I want to I want to know about it. I want to learn about this. It's um,
1: a nice term. Absolutely. Yes, it is. And it's you know, it's one of those things that y- you sound like a real professional when you're talking about oh well you've got an anemic domain <laughs> yes. on there that's where you've gone wrong yeah you yeah. know it's an anti pattern you know <laughs> and if you get questioned
0: on it you can always say well haven't you read Martin Fowler's seminal paper <laughs> and on in this occasion I'll, you you generally will have read them because they are very readable papers yes this, will go, this one goes back all the way back to two thousand and three ish I think and, we, and we'll stick a link
1: to the article in the, in the uh, show notes definitely it is an absolute must read so. An anemic domain model is really what we've just been talking about, where your domain objects, so your classes are representing the real-world objects, so your customer or your book or whatever it is in your system, mm-hmm. are just a collection of attributes we get and sets and no exactly. logic at all. Exactly.
0: And um, before we go into detail here, I'll just put a caveat mm. around this, which I think is really important. Um, And I'm finding myself saying this more and more to customers. There is no one way of doing software. Yes. And you you really shouldn't fall into the trap of thinking, this is a must-do, this is a must-not-do, we must always do, etc. There's lots of different models. There's lots of different ways of thinking. And I I realise that our customers kind of looking for clarity, and they want, just tell us a way to do things. And I think as trainers, we learn to fall into that trap of do this, do this, do this, or don't, that's a bad one. You know, we have to be quite clear and precise. Yes. And, and, And yet in the real world, there's, you know, there's so many shades of gray. And I'm saying that particularly because if, for example, you are currently heavily into a functional model, so Java 8, lambdas, that kind of thing, then a lot of what we're talking about here is redundant. And there is no one right and wrong way of doing things. So my caveat here is everything that we're about to discuss is is supposing you are doing an object-oriented design, an object-oriented model. Yes. So I don't want to hear... I don't want comments saying, oh, yeah, well, if you did it using
1: functions, then you wouldn't have this. System. No, you wouldn't. You're doing it differently. Okay, absolutely. And, you know, yeah. let's be honest. A lot of our customers, we know, are building Spring Boot applications where they are going to have a domain layer. They are going to have some kind of presentation layer. You know, So, so they are thinking mm-hmm. in that way. Uh, it is a core of what a lot of our customers are doing. So, yeah. And, um, and our, so I, I still...
0: There's a lot to like in functional programming. We do a lot of it ourselves, and we're doing more and more of it, uh, especially when you're doing highly concurrent throughput-type systems. Yes. But where object orientation, I think, is very valuable, Um, and I realize this is contentious, but for me, the value I've got out of it is when you're working in a complex domain and you've got lots of different types of objects in that real-world domain and lots of different classes of data, I still think a domain model is a very powerful way of expressing real world problems.
1: Yeah, I agree. And where the business logic around some of that stuff is complicated, I mean, you know, just talking about our own website, who can and can't watch a video, yes, yes, you could obviously do it through functional programming, but it's easier to understand because you are writing code that that completely reflects in English the real world, doesn't it? You're using nouns that that (coughs) make sense. You can look at the code and see straight away what it's doing. Yes. Um, Whereas, you know, the bits of our code that are analyzed Usage and creating reports. Absolutely, it's you know looking at huge amounts of data. Functional Real world is the way streaming today. data. Yeah, yes. functional is perfect. Doing aggregations and exactly
0: beautiful. Yeah. So I realise that we're in a we're in a strange time in, in software development. That there's a major shift in the in the models that we're using. I'm still a you know a passionate advocate of domain modelling. Have you said what an any domain model so is? So we've said, said yes, yes it, sets. it just gets us Right, so
1: you've no business logic. No business. So where is the business logic then? So that's it. <clears throat> I think Marta Fowler describes it in a service layer. I think some people call it an application
0: yeah. layer. Yeah, now this is where I've got, can do a little bit of ranting here. I would strongly advise anybody who's wanting to get into design or architecture or whatever. And this actually came from the discussion with the customer as well. They said something like, you know, I've got my... I've got my service layer. They actually called it the business logic layer. Right. And that—that that is, a, I think, a massive anti-pattern. So what we're talking about then is you've got a data class. Yes. Just with data in it. Yes. Getting some sets. Yes. Just allow you to access that data. And you've got a separate layer where the logic resides. Yes. Now, that ain't object orientation. That's procedural. That's how things were done Before, which is where you have your logic, an algorithm, and
1: it's just reading and writing data. So, I think a common scenario though, when you see that, is say you're using an MVC application. So, you know, everyone knows don't put business logic in your controller Mm -hmm. and it's when you're writing your controllers that you suddenly find the need for the business logic. So your domain model you've written first, you know that's sat there, that's static, that's representing the real world. You're coming up with these new ideas of business logic which you need for your controller, and there's that sense I think that some developers get of well, it's it wouldn't be right to go and edit the domain model. Yeah. So we'll put it in a we'll put it in this service package, which is really we'll come back to that if we can. Okay. Can we come back to that because that's. Really important point,
0: right? Um, but we've missed a couple of steps along the way. Even if you're not doing MVC, yes. which you know, that just adds a, another layer of complexity. Okay, I think it's. I think it's. So, one of the commenters, very intelligent comment, actually, on the Hacker News page, says something along the lines of, um, you know, all that's happening the reason people are doing this, forget about controls and services and all that, even if there was none of that needed, the reason people are doing it is people in general don't get object orientation, but they want to do object orientation. Right. So they work in a language like Java, which is object-oriented, so therefore I'm doing object orientation, but then they start building a class for the business logic and a class for the data, now right. the fundamental of object orientation. Yeah, we always use that buzzword encapsulation, but the the real fundamental of object orientation is the data and the behaviour are
1: combined
0: in the same modules. The data is as close as possible to where it's actually gonna be used.
1: Yes. So, so is part of the issue that when <clears throat> you know you're using something like Hibernate, so your domain model is also. Containing the instructions as to how it is to be persisted to a database, mm. um, that there's a fear of confusing what's going into a database, and what isn't yeah. by adding extra <laughs> things into, yeah. you know what, what should be a, what could be a class that's simply representing the actual data rather than the behaviour of that data. That's a
0: huge problem, I think. Again, I'm, I might say let's come back to that because, okay. it, again, <laughs> well, you, you're quite rightly wanting to. Talk about real-world problems about implementing this, and I'm st- mm. I'm still trying to keep on the kind of theoretical, oh, okay. uh, the purist approach. You're absolutely right. Once you actually start implementing an object-oriented system, of course, your data classes, generally, if we're just talking classically, you need you might need to persist them in a database. So how do you do that? Well, and then you start putting database stuff in those classes. Yes. And to date, JPA or Hibernate is one of the cleanest ways of doing it, which basically puts all of that code up on a, on a layer that you can't really see, and your data classes remain sort of un few annotations, maybe. Yeah. But yeah, I don't even want to go there. Oh, okay, just yet. sorry. <laughs> it's just that, you know, the, the w- w- with an anemic domain model, you're not doing object orientation. It's as simple as that. You're doing a procedural system. And I love the way Martin Fowler says. I've lost Martin Fowler's post. I'm going to quote um, from Martin Fowler. Object-oriented purism is all very well, (laughs) but we need more fundamental arguments against anemia. So I hope we've made it clear that he's stating an anemic domain model is a really bad thing. And we agree. Yes. Um, And I love what he says here. The problem with an an, anemic domain model is that they incur all of the costs of a domain model without yielding any of the benefits. Right. That's absolutely gorgeous. And if you read around what he's saying there, I'm sort of... I could paraphrase what he's saying. He's saying if you want to if you don't want to do object orientation, fill your boots, go away and build a procedural system, go away and do functional or whatever. Yes. But don't say you're doing object orientation. If you want to if you're going to build a domain model, which is a hard work, it's a hard effort. Yes. I think it's valuable because it keeps your design aligned with the real world problem. I realize that's a controversial thing that a lot of people think is nonsense. I, I like it. Yes. If you're going to go to that expense and that cost, don't go and then implement it as an anemic domain model with a layer of procedural code on top of it, because you've got to maintain that domain model yes. for all time. Um, a lot of hard work, and yet you haven't got any of the benefits of OO.
1: Yes, okay.
0: And um, so I love the way he's saying that. And I think it's buried in the middle of the piece. And I think it's a very important point. If you're going to do, if, that's the key word, if you're going to do a domain model, then do a proper one. If you don't think domain modeling is valuable, then don't do it. Do it it in a different way.
1: And a proper domain model is one where a single class contains the attributes of that class and the business logic relating to those attributes. Exactly. Exactly. So any
0: talk of a business logic layer is not object-oriented. Right. And you, should, you, sh- you shouldn't you should have a business layer. Now, we, we often talk about a service layer. Right. And as Martin Fowler correctly identifies here, the service layer tends to be a bucket or a bin where people throw their business logic in, again, because it feels easier. So you end up with lots of get set pairs. And then a massive service class actually yes. doing all of the work. So, what's wrong with that then? Apart from what he said there, I mean, he said you've you've got a domain model that you've got to yes. maintain. Yet it's not doing anything. The other reason I, I think would be unit testing. Much harder to unit test and you know a large algorithm in a service class yes. than it would be to take a domain class which has no domain classes don't have any coupling to um, uh, web tiers or, or databases even. They, yes. a, a domain class should be one that you can just instantiate and you can poke some data into it and then you can call some business methods and see what its state is. Yes, Perfect for unit
1: testing. Service layers are always hard to test. So absolutely, you, you almost end up having to mock stuff to, to test the exactly, surface layer.
0: Exactly, which is why you know, we've had some criticism of our test-driven development course, you know. We've got a chapter or two on, on mocking, but yes. so we need more on mocking. How do you mock the database? My well, <laughs> answer to that is actually, you know, forget it, don't. You should never find yourself in a position where you've got to do well, that. Well you should, then that would be integration testing. Okay. You can do it, absolutely do it, and it's it has value. But we don't think it's that's not where the real value is. Ninety percent of your
1: value is from plain Java tests. So but a service layer is still going to be needed. It is. If you, for example, have got some business logic to determine some value based on two different objects, which don't necessarily have a relation. So, you know, just thinking back to Java fundamentals, we had a use case about, you know, a library where people can go and borrow books. So if you want to know, if you want a piece of business logic that says, is this book on loan to this customer, Mm -hmm. that isn't necessarily going to sit well in either the customer or the book class. Exactly. So you'll need a... And that's
0: exactly what a service layer should be. A service layer is for coordination only, right. only really. I'll expand on that a little bit more, but that's all it's doing, coordinating. There's actually not. There's nothing to test there particularly other than has it done step one, has it done step two, and it combines yes. the results or whatever. Service layer should be really thin, as thin as possible. Okay. You shouldn't find yourself with business logic in there. Um, so that will lead us on to, it might be a bit early, but a common question at this
1: point is, well, what's the difference between that and a controller? So we'll come back to that. Okay. Shall we come back? Okay. Can we just, yeah, we'll come back to it? Because I'd like to just then, so one of the applications I've written is an application which is actually to do with reconciling financial information. But So it's got a domain model, which effectively is... Uh, let's just say to keep things simple, is reflecting a bank account. So you've got the idea of accounts, transactions, those kind of things, real world concepts. And then there is a process to import data and convert it into instances of those objects, mm-hmm. So you know, which I've called the file import service. And I think of that as a service. Great. So a service can generate instances of objects. Yeah, that would be a valid thing to do in a definitely, service. yeah. Great, okay, Sounds I can relax right. now then, good. Right. You wouldn't call that business
0: logic, though, would you? Actually generating the object well, from a file is not,
1: what well, you know, that's Okay, not... so maybe then I should go a step further. So part of that process of generating is actually looking at the state of data in that file to determine what kind of object to generate but also how what the what the property setting should be based on so for example it might be that the raw data comes in the csv format with a code that says usa yeah. and we are saying right create an object with a country of yeah. united states right. of america that's yeah. fine to sit in a service there yeah it's, in a your fa- it's a
0: factory i suppose That's creating objects based on
1: somebody i still
0: argue it's not Business logic in that it's not a rule of the business. No. This is a this is a bit of behind-the-scenes
1: machination That's needed to. So that's interesting But if you use the word factory. So factory classes you would class those as like a service. Oh, yeah I'm on very thin ice there. I've never <laughs>
0: thought of it like that.
1: Let me waffle
0: and <laughs> dig myself out of this hole because just talking of patterns and pattern names I think one of the patterns that is often the Gang of Four patterns Back on podcast number eight, no, on an earlier podcast, we talked about design patterns. And strangely, the one pattern that we never mentioned, well, podcast seven, I'm sorry. Podcast seven, I am trying to
1: hand signal to you. We just had a call from one of our customers. (laughs)
0: Um, Yeah, podcast seven. Um, We never mentioned the facade pattern. Never once mentioned it. And it's probably the easiest pattern. And the idea of facade is if you have a complex system, a system in quote marks, it can be anything, but for this discussion, that means the domain model. The domain yes. model's pretty complicated, I hope. If yes. It's not anemic. And uh, lots of little classes. Now a client, let's say that's the user interface, but it could be anything, could be a REST interface or whatever, wants to get some work done. So what do we do? Does that? interface call the domain model. Now there's something really wrong about that because the domain model's complicated and quite low level and hundreds of classes in there and the user interface might have to call one class to do something and then another class and then another class and user interface will get horribly bloated and complicated. So answer, dead simple. You put a facade class in the middle and I, I can't remember what what the one sentence description of facade is, but it's something like provide a unified, simplified interface to clients so that the client can get done what they want to do with a single method call. Basically.
1: Yes, you're, sim- you're you're hiding some of the complexity of what's yeah. hidden underneath. Exactly. Yeah. So, what is a service class? It's a facade
0: to a domain model. Right. And. As long as you keep that clear, then everybody's happy. So just going back, I was waffling and filibusting there just to avoid, <laughs> so you're saying, is a factory a service? I've never really thought about it like that, but certainly a service could call a factory, and yes. absolutely, yeah. Okay. So um, that's what a service layer should be, and that gives you the ability to do things like, you can easily convert, using modern frameworks, you could easily convert a service into a REST interface, for example. Now you certainly, in my view, do not want to be converting your domain model into a REST interface. No, okay. We've had a few requests from customers to cover Spring Data JPA. Sorry, Spring... I forget what it's called now. Spring Data REST, something like that. Spring REST is beautiful, it's actually just Spring MVC, nothing clever about that. But there's a separate project in Spring Boot not Spring Boot actually, Spring generally, that will take your domain model and generate a CRUD interface, create, read, update, and delete in REST around every object. And I can't stand that, so I'm not going to touch that because of what we're talking about. Okay. We should be working in REST to put the facade layer. We mentioned before, What's the? Di-
1: I think that would be a common question now, what's the difference then between a controller and a service. So go, going back to yeah. So in the MVC world, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so which you know, having done recently, re- recording this uh, a, a, a chapter or two about MVC as an architecture type, you know, I, I very much think of it as controller is about flow of your application. So it's about getting getting you know retrieving a response from the client, do calling the the business logic that needs to happen which is the model in MVC, and then based on the results of that, working out where's the right place for that client to be, what's the next page for that client. So it's about process flow. In context of this discussion though, that
0: business logic that you worryingly referred to there, that would be the the service, the controller will call the service. Yes. I don't like that term model. I mean, it's a a term stolen from a completely different model, a different (laughs) way of thinking actually. But yeah. The controller would call a service class, yes, and wouldn't care about the low-level domain. So no, so the service is the there.
1: interface <clears throat> between the domain classes and the controller. Yes, yes. If you're building a, a web app, of course. Yes, yes. So yeah, the only thing I would add to
0: that is a controller, in the context of what we're describing, controller is always coupled to the web tier. So in a controller, yes. you will see things like HTTP request. HTTP session. Cookies maybe, if, if you're going down that line. So you'll see all those kinds of things there which are specific to the web. Yes. In a service, you would see none of that. So you could reuse a service class and a domain model if you were building an app where you needed an Android interface and a REST interface and a web interface.
1: Absolutely. You'd use
0: that service and domain in all of those contexts perfectly happily. Yes. It's the controller that would be totally different in those three different models. Yes. So that's the difference. Their intention, their purpose, a controller and a service is kind of the same thing. It's providing an interface between two separate concerns
1: yes but the the specific implementations are different but the amount of times we see you know examples of people work people have done whether it's you know live projects they're working on or you know you go in and see a customer and you're looking at their controllers and they're riddled with business logic exactly so we're back
0: to anemic ties to the discussion up beautifully we're back to anemic domain models so everything in a controller domain model gets and set pairs everywhere yes. absolute rubbish an expensive domain
1: model they have to maintain. And I wonder if it's going back to the old end, you know, three-tier development yeah. where you thought about your database, which is what they're making their domain classes effectively, as a tier of your application. Yeah. I wonder if that's where it sort of stems from as people's way of thinking.
0: It's that people don't, didn't get object orientation or at least got it at an academic level, and then when they start implementing, it all kind of goes out of the window and you go yes. back to... And there's also the, the, the other topic of, and I saw quite a lot of these in, out in the field, of what I would just call their CRUD applications. There is no business logic. Mm. All you're doing in your system is you're creating records. Yes. So in that case, do you need a domain model? No. Why would you go to all that expense? I'd knock that up in, I don't know, I'd use a database like Access or Oracle and whack some forms on top of it, and your job's done. I would step back and question what kind of a business do you have if you have no business logic? But I guess there are many businesses that are just record
1: keepers. Well, you also get the kind of thing that happens all the time where your business is complex, you're doing lots of different things, and all of a sudden you get this, right, we need the ability to create a custom invoice where I can just put in, here's the customer's name, here's their address, here's the amount of the product line, and it will generate it in a nice way we can email as a PDF. Just knock me up that quickly. It doesn't have to interface with anything else we do. And that's the kind of thing that, you you know, as a programmer, I would say, right, I'll do that in Boot. Because I can do the interface very nicely in TimeLeaf, uh, it doesn't take me any time at all. And yes, I'm creating a whole domain model simply because it's the quickest way to do it. Right. Uh, and I think that happens an awful lot. It's it's what everyone used to do with spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. You know, the old, knock me up a quick VBA macro in a spreadsheet to do this little job, this expense form, clay. You know, that mm-hmm. expense claim form. There's, every company I've worked in has had those. And I guess the problem with that is that. Then becomes that spreadsheet becomes
0: you start tacking other things on and it yes. grows and it. So that's I suppose is the idea of a rich domain model, that it's yes. sort of upfront thinking about
1: the whole business rather than one little bit. I guess. Yes. But, you know, most businesses are built on lots of different systems. They're yeah. not built on one big system yeah. that manages everything. And yeah. and of course, that's also the way forward with microservices to build things in lots of little systems that. Indeed. Yes, you know. So yeah, if
0: you're doing microservices, is there a is there a place for the domain model? Very good point,
1: but it might be the the actual as I say, I, I think I see people using it all the time Simply because it's the quickest way to build something mm-hmm. if you need to get a crud application up and running very very quickly mm. and there's no you know Maybe minor validation, if any. It's just a case of being able to give some people the ability to input some data into a system. Uh, Why not? You know, that's the way. It's a quick way to do it. And these anemic classes then are really just
0: becoming representations of database tables. If you're using a database, absolutely, It's, it's fascinating. I think the longer I work on this, the longer I think about this, the more the more I realize. Everything is. It depends.
1: There's
0: a. I started this discussion by saying there's a hundred ways of thinking about this.
1: Yes, but but interestingly, then taking it back to um, Brian's article, Mm -hmm. his keyword, his new keyword. (laughs) Glad you've mentioned that. Yeah, (laughs) is underscore underscore data. (laughs) Right. So he is saying this. It's sort of implicitly. This is a class that is representing data and nothing else. Yeah. It is a database table. Really, I'm yeah, quite right wording. yeah. That's what he's saying. This is a data-only class. Oh well, my thinking. Well, I was
0: assuming they were doing the same thing as as Groovy, in that you can then add logic if you want. I don't know if that's the case because I haven't tried it yet, but. Um it's an interesting
1: keyword. I thought you were going to complain about the underscore underscore. I wasn't, actually. It's disgusting. It is. I, I've, just, I've just got to a random bit of that article, and actually he's showing that you would potentially build a regular class that can extend the data class. So you might de- define a data class, and then you could build your so – he calls his data class C, and then says class D extends C, and that's where then you can put in – your logic now. I'm not reading it fully, so it may be that that's not what he is uh, suggesting as a, as a good what idea. What you're saying
0: kind of makes sense. There's always been this problem that, and I think we might have touched on it before. You've got a business class with rich domain, blah 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 blah. But practically, you've always got to map it to a database table. So you end up with all of these annotations that are only relevant to the database. And you violated a you violated cohesion principle there. That it's doing two at least two things. Yes. And you've mixed it together, and it's harder to maintain. So the answer to that is you would have a just. Well, back to it again. Just a data class. Yes. Uh, there used to be a pattern for this called. I've got now data transfer object. That's it. A DTO. So yeah, yeah. You ended, you had your rich business object and then a sort of anemic counterpoint class. And that's something I avoided like the plague, because then you end up with a dual hierarchy of classes. And we've tried in the past to do things like what you're describing, you have one extending the other. Yes. And there's, there's ways to make it. I've never found a satisfactory solution for that, frankly. So it's an interesting area. There's a suggestion that, I mean, I take umbrage at the, if we're really going to have new keywords in Java that begin with underscores. The reason he's doing that, presumably, is to avoid any clashes with if you've got code that uses a variable called data,
1: which is quite common. Yes. That would break the Java. But why would you not just do this with an annotation on the existing class yeah. name? Because, you know, he's put in underscore underscore data class. So underscore underscore data is like the equivalent of public or private. It's it's okay, sitting at that level yeah. of your code. Uh, yeah. And again, why not just have it as a an attribute if that's how they're going to do it? Well, somebody suggested that perhaps what he's doing there is bike
0: shedding. If you're familiar with that term, bike I'm shedding. I'm not, no. It, yeah, and I... I, I Every time I come across that term, I have to Google it and then remind (laughs) myself what it is. But um, its um, I think it's a corollary to one of Parkinson's laws, which is that the example that the guy who invented that term came up with was, imagine you're building a nuclear power plant and you're doing the proposals for a nuclear power plant. When that goes to a committee, they'll sign off those proposals within half an hour because nobody really understands how to build a nuclear power plant, so absolutely nobody's going to criticise any aspects of it, it'll just get signed through. Whereas, when it comes to building the bike sheds mm-hmm. that are around the back of the nuclear power plant, well, everybody can understand a bike shed, and everybody's going to have a very strong opinion of what the size and shape of the bike shed should be, how many positions there should be in the bike shed, whether we should allow smoking around the bike shed, etc. 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 The bike shed takes two years to get signed off, the nuclear power plant, half an hour. So, there's quite a common thing that people do when putting a proposal together, yeah, is they will deliberately put some nonsense in, yes. knowing that that's what everybody's gonna discuss. Well, should we have double underscores or should we have one underscore or should it be a new oh. keyword? And all of the like important
1: <laughs> stuff around it, everyone
0: will ignore and just say, Oh, that's not oh, yes, right really
1: the principle, it's just so, the wording, yeah.
0: Yeah, one of the commenters said, I think he's probably bike shedding, so I think he, <laughs> he probably is. So, um, I mean, it was a bit of a ramble, and it's been nice to talk about it, but I think it's just one of those cases where several topics have come together at the same time and it's worth just just reviewing really. A lot of people have said you know in Java we mindlessly create get set methods and maybe that's the outcome of this. Just think about what you're doing when you create get set methods. Trouble is all the
1: frameworks insist you do it anyway so Yes, but I think it's hopefully been helpful for people, especially if you're working in isolation on projects, you know, you're you're developing in your own little world. It's helpful to just get that reminder of think about where is the right place for your business logic to be, um, to be cautious about the service layer and and there needs to be a reason for, for a method to be in that service layer. And rich domain classes, you know, unless you've got a good reason not to, as you said, there's multiple ways of doing things, but um, there's obvious advantages of that, and particularly the unit testing, yeah. just jumps out at me. Definitely, um, yeah, lovely. Well, I think I hope that's been useful for some of the people listening out there, and certainly for the people who we've been talking to who wanted to yes. raise the discussion point.
0: Yeah, I suspect that the people we've been discussing. This with are looking for a right and wrong answer and a very concrete way of thinking, and we've we've come up with the classic trainers. Oh, it depends. Yes. it depends what your requirements are.
1: But, but it, it although it does, there is that feeling of well, normally I would try and always have a richer domain model. Try and minimise the service layer. Um, the other thing, we haven't mentioned this, but again, is you know, if you're doing MVC application, this is the kind of thing I come up with time and time again, is you're writing the the view part, okay? And you need to display, let's go back to that idea of the customer and their status. You want to display the customer's status on the view, but the status isn't part of the customer's domain model. Yes. So now you've got to do work in your controller to retrieve the status and bring it through to the view. Mm-hmm. If it's in the domain model, it's just there and it's easier. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen people writing tag libs. <laughs> Oh, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to be able to get this data at the view level because right. you know which is horrible and obviously you know you wouldn't do that you'd write you should be right do something in your is controller me? i
0: bet that's me using that well it, it wasn't in
1: java so <laughs> you know let's be fair but uh, so it was, it was, was a, me well i'm thinking of some groovy code that somebody grail's code somebody wrote once so but you know in an ideal world if you're doing it today you're not going to do that you're going to write code in your in your uh, con- controller to evaluate the status. But if you've got a list of customers and you're having to get every status to pass it through to the view, it's bonkers. Yeah. So again yeah. another good reason for richer domain models is it makes your views easier if that's the kind of oh, environment you're working in. And that's
0: absolutely what you want. It's not over engineering this, I don't think you, no. views change. You want to move from you, you want to build an app on Android whatever. Yes. Or iOS and views are a very ephemeral, brittle thing that often change. So, definitely. So, um, I'm conscious we've been talking quite, uh, you know, it's all been design and pondering design. So, I think on the next podcast, we might get down to some nitty-gritty Java. We've been talking about doing the top five or top ten tips that we would give people in Java. I think we'll do that next time around. Okay, sounds good. And on a future podcast, we're going to do a full critique of one of your Systems. After you've just criticised my use of a the taglib, there by the sounds okay. of it, we're
1: going to get you back for that. We did say that the code behind the All Things Java website we would actually make that public on GitHub. So okay. maybe, and that's quite a simple. Now we've been talking about this. Most of that is a CRUD application. Yeah. So let's uh, maybe do that, and we could talk through some of that. Maybe as a, if you want to do a critique, it good, would be good idea. Uh, I think we'll do that. Yeah, nice little project. Some
0: point in the future. And um, just one parting shot on this. So I realise we've not about microservices and, and that could certainly blow all of this out of the water but I don't think it's unreasonable microservice can have a domain model just be a small one that's all won't be yes' I mean 50 classes it,
1: it should be the I mean we're, we're talking actually we were talking earlier before this podcast about uh updating our uh reporting suite and you know if that becomes a standalone microservice it will have solely the bit of data it needs to do yeah. its work. It won't have any more data than it needs, but it's going to need some form of domain model there, yeah. uh, optimized for the domain that we're working yeah, in and yeah. reporting. It'll Absolutely. be very small
0: and something that one person could understand within five minutes, but Absolutely. subtle domain plan. model and it's not going to be anemic.
1: It certainly won't be an No, there's going to be an awful lot of business logic
0: in there. (laughs) Good stuff. So uh, it will be about two weeks, I think, for the next one, two, three weeks. Two, three weeks, hopefully, yes. This has been All Things Java. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening.